Guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm an apprentice at WPC Bull Creek, and it's so great to be with you this morning to open God's Word. And I want to start by asking you all a question. I wonder how many of you know what the Banking Royal Commission is all about. Hands up. Not many. Yeah, fantastic. That's what we want to hear. Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. What it was is essentially banks and financial institutions, insurance companies as well, they were exploiting everyday people for their own gain. And, and for a number of years, it went undetected. And so, the government decided to have an investigation to see what's actually going on here. And the findings were pretty haunting. Let me give you some examples. So, the banks have been charging people, like you and me, a fee for services that they said they would be doing. But they weren't actually doing anything. And from this, they've taken over a billion dollars. So no work, billion dollars. There you go. In another example, they've charged these fees to customers that had died. And at some point, they charged around 4,000 dead customers these fees. Uh, ironically, some of these uh, customers were paying for life insurance. And so I'm not, how that works, I, I don't quite know, but it seems a bit late. But you know, the saddest part about this story it's like they got away with it. The commissioner, the guy that's in charge of the report and investigation, he made a report and he said, these things, they did happen, it's true. In fact, here are 76 recommendations that you, you could do to fix the problem. That's about it. Nothing else was done. And in fact, it was interesting to see that the chief executives of those banks and institutes, they each earned between five to $16 million each. And you know, when you see these CEOs with their huge pay packages, their beautiful houses, beautiful cars, you can't help but have a mixture of emotions, right? On one hand, of course, you're angry. They've exploited everyday people for their own gain. But on the other hand, you can't help but feel a little, a little envious of their wealth, right? And that they got away with it. You see, this is the same struggle that we see here in Psalm 73, which was written over two and a half thousand years ago, so it's nothing new. And we're going to have a closer look at what this psalm, what God has to say about this struggle. Uh, the struggle where, where people seem to exploit others, they do evil, they get away with it, and they prosper. But we don't see any of that. 
And so we're told that Asaph is the writer of this psalm, and you can see it as he writes. He's pouring his heart out. And so you can almost cut this psalm in two parts. From verse 1 to 16, there's this, the crisis that Asaph builds. And from 17 onwards, you see his consolation. And we'll see how that plays out. And as we do, we really follow Asaph's thought process, which will be really helpful when we think about this struggle. And so to kick us off with the crisis, in verse 1, we see how Asaph generally sees God, right? Verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right? It's a wisdom or a logic statement that you, you normally would see in the Bible's book of Proverbs. It's like a proverbial statement. God is good to Israel. That makes sense. They are God's people. But then we have his crisis. Have a look with me in verse 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, his crisis is that God's goodness doesn't seem to go to the pure in heart. It seems to go to the wicked. And for clarity, who are the wicked? Uh, because we're not talking about the musical production. We're not talking about the, uh, the 90s slang for the cool people. Uh, no, 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 no. We're looking at the people in verse 1, but the opposite of them, right? They're those that think that they don't need God. And when you see these, the, the wicked people succeed, you can really understand Asaph, can't you? Uh, you, you start doubting. It, it creeps into that thought that God truly is good, but you begin to doubt that. Because if God is good, if he is good, how could the wicked be prospering? How could people who have no care at all for God be so successful? I mean, shouldn't it be the other way around? Asaph feels it. He's envying them. And this crisis that Asaph is struggling with is that they've, it's not just financially, it's just their whole lives. They're, they're prospering in every way, shape, and form. In fact, everything in their life is going really well. And so he pours out his complaints in verses 4 to 5 as he describes how these wicked live and die peacefully, live fat, abundantly, healthily, carefree. And, and because of this, it starts for the wicked. It starts with pride in verse 3 and continues in verse 6. It's all about their pride. And in fact, look at the way he describes how prosperous they are in verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness. All right, just, just think about that image for a moment. Uh, so, for example, you have a cute, chubby baby, uh, but, but then you take away the cuteness, you take away the baby, and it's just this fat that's in your eyes. It's just pouring out of your eyes. Isn't that a bizarre picture? But it's this picture of such great overflow, this great excess. That's how prosperous they are. It's pouring out of their eyes. And of course, remember in Asaph's time, two and a half, some two and a half thousand years ago, being fat didn't mean that you ate too much at Mecca's. It meant that you could actually go out and afford wheat and all the food, proper food, at any time, any day. And so you get this picture of a group of people who have everything they need and they lack in nothing. Now, 
Can you imagine going up to someone like that with all that they have, all their abundance, and saying to them, you know what? You know what you need? You need God in your life. Well, I can imagine verse 8 and 9 in their response, right? Have a look. Why would I need God? I've got everything I need. Everything I have, I've worked for. I don't need God to help me. And look at verse 9. Look at what it says. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. And you know, when I read that last line carefully, all I could think about is this picture of a peacock that has all its feathers kind of puffed out around it, showing off everything it has to get a potential mate, right? But then when I thought about how can a tongue do that, that made less sense. Uh, But did it? Actually, it did. It fit this picture really well. Because I'm sure we can all think of the person who, like this peacock, they puff themselves up. They boast. They show off all that they have and they strut around in their whole lives arrogantly and pridefully. I mean, they boast in their achievements, in their abilities, and you think with the way we have internet, social media now, with Facebook and Instagram, that just shows it all the more. You see their lavish lifestyles, their fancy cars, their fancy holidays, and they just, they don't stop talking about themselves. And to Asaph, This is the kind of arrogance that the wicked have against God. And you know, their pride, it actually doesn't stop there. It keeps going. It swells up and up. Look at verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Do you see what they're saying here, right? They're saying there's nothing in the skies. Don't look up there. There's no answers up there. And even if there is, even if God did exist, well, he doesn't seem to know what we're doing. It's an amazing arrogance, isn't it? And when you see all the prosperity happening for the wicked, in all their pride, in all their arrogance, but not for yourself, it really does hurt. And, you know, maybe we don't see it to the extent where our friends' eyes are kind of swelling up and bulging because of their abundance, but we see aspects of it everywhere, don't we? Maybe your uni friends who, go, who don't go to church, they spend their time doing job applications and getting work experience while you're busy preparing for and attending Bible studies. Next thing you know, they're already at full-time work and you're still studying. Maybe one of your workmates gets that once-in-a-lifetime promo because they've poured in the countless hours going to overtime, hanging out with the bosses at clubs and bars while you're helping prepare for Sunday school. Or or maybe you see their non-Christian neighbors or friends affording these beautiful home renovations, just like you see in Better Homes and Garden, Or, or those beautiful extravagant holidays, and they just show you the pictures while you're giving money to missions and ministries of the church. I mean, if they're succeeding, what's the point of keeping my heart and my hands pure? We're the ones coming to church. We're the ones following God. Isn't it all just a waste of time then? Well, just like Asaph, what we know about God being good, it often doesn't feel true in our lives. And it's usually those who don't believe in God that prosper. And it doesn't seem right. 
And so you can see Asaph's questioning gets really deep in his heart. Have a look at verse 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, the wicked live a life of blessing, but Asaph, he just feels it. He's just wasting his time. It's all been in vain. But if God is good, how can that be? Asaph knows God is good, but his experience just isn't matching up. And to give you a bit of background, Asaph's actually one of the worship leaders of the temple. And so you see, he's very influential. And he recognizes that this doubting of God's goodness was actually really dangerous. Have a look at verse 15. He says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You know, if he had said what he had felt, if he had clicked send on that tweet, if he had posted onto the wall, he would have betrayed God's children, those that were entrusted to him in the temple. And yet he can't hide this truth. He can't cover it up. What he's feeling, you can't unfeel. And so he's pushed into this deep and burdensome reflection in verse 16. Uh, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And just like Asaph, often we're pushed there, right? We're trying to understand why, but we just can't. It really is a wearisome task, just trying to think about it. You know, why is it that I don't have what they have? Why is it that the grass always seems greener on the other side? And so what did Asaph do? And here we see a sudden shift in Asaph's focus. We see in verse 17 the consolation. Have a look. He struggles with all this until... Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He finds consolation in the sanctuary of God. He comes to God in the temple, and there he's, he's comforted because he gains an understanding of the full picture. He sees the end. You know, that's why it's so important for us. As we come before God, we come before the Word of God we have from the Bible because it's God Himself speaking to us. And if you want to have the right insight to your life, well, that's where we should go, just like Asaph did. And we can see his consolation because he gains three different truths from this experience. So first one, the truth about the wicked. Have a look with me in verse 18 to 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You know, just like Asaph thought in verse 2, he was slipping. What we see now for the wicked is that they're not just slipping. They are set, they're put in slippery places, and their destination, it's ruin. It's not, it's not just that. They're, it will be destroyed in a moment. From the sanctuary of God, Asaph sees the true future of the wicked. 
Yes, they seem to be prospering, but their end is ruin. There is an end coming. There is judgment, and it's not far off. I say that. I say that it's coming, it's really soon, it's not far off. But in today's age, right, like a moment feels like forever, right? Let alone a hundred years. I mean, when was the last time you had to wait for a video to load on YouTube or something? I mean, like if I have to fast forward and it's loading, it doesn't play straight away, that's it. We need fast internet. Who can live in these conditions? It's impossible. You can't. We all kind of panic. You know, if the TV starts showing static, it's broken. You've got to get a new one. We can't wait for it to come back on. There are so many ways that looks, right? Like you've ever been to a coffee shop, you order that coffee, and the person behind you got their order first. Something's gone wrong. Call in management, they've misplaced my order. You know, something's gone wrong because we can't stand it. You know, we, like when you think of watching a movie nowadays, you have Netflix, YouTube, you don't need to go to a video store. You know, in fact, you could be watching Netflix, YouTube right now. That's how on demand it is. You know, we're not, we're in an age where patience is not rewarded. And a moment just feels like ages. And yet here, in this psalm, in God's word, God says to us that the life that we live, it's so fleeting. It will be destroyed in a moment. And it's true, because if you think of a hundred years and you want to compare it to an eternity, well, that's like trying to find a grain of sand at a beach, a drop of water in an ocean, a needle in a haystack. It's like Asaph says. It's like a dream, and when you wake up, it's all over. So yes, yes, it does seem like they're prospering. Yes, it seems like they have everything but it will not be for long. In a moment, all that they seem to have will be gone. Those riches, their health, their wealth, all their prosperity, all of it, gone in a moment. And you know, it could be through world markets crashing, where you see all your life savings disappear overnight. It could be a fire where you literally lose everything overnight. But it could also be going to the grave, like Steve Jobs, without his $10 billion fortune. Like dew on grass, all of it will go. We, knew, we need to think further than our lives here. There is more to it than just these years here. They'll be over in a moment. So do not be shaken by the prosperity of the wicked. It will not last. You know, sometimes the grass on the other side, it does look greener, it does look shinier. But that's because it's fake. It's hiding the truth. And the truth is, God will come in judgment. Justice will be done. There will be a time where all of us, all of us, will be called before God, and then the wicked will come to ruin. That's the first truth, the truth about the wicked. Second truth we see in verses 21 to 23, we see the truth about God himself. Because when you, re- when you see the future that the wicked have, we see the ruin that awaits. You 
kind of feel like Asaph does when you realize how you've acted and how you've treated God. I mean, in your weeks, in your months, or even in your years, how well do we really treat God? What do we think about him? If we think about him at all. And at that point, we realize, just like Asaph, we were brutish. We were ignorant. We were like beasts towards God. We were like the wicked. Because when we realize that most of our time, if not all of our time, is filled with our own desires to succeed, our own desires to enjoy this life, then we realize that God had no place in it. But why is it? Why do we do that? Well, we're like Asaph. It's because we desire the prosperity that the wicked have. We get caught up in our envy of the wicked prospering because we want that prosperity. And yet, despite our ignorance, despite our wickedness, we see verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You see, despite our treatment towards God, the Creator, the way we've treated Him, despite the way we've obsessed about this world and ignored Him, despite all that, God still holds His hand out to us. And for Asaph, his experience of that, of God holding His hand out to him, would have been seen in the words of the Old Testament prophets, through the temple worship, through the sacrificial system, where God kind of shows Israel, or God's people, a way to relate to Him. But actually for us, in 2019, here in Frio, we see the offer of God's hand in a far more direct, far more personal way, in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear these words from Paul as he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And see, because of God's great mercy, his great love for us, by grace he has sent, saved us by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to not only die on the cross, but to rise again, so that we who have faith in Jesus can be alive with Jesus and to be seated with him in the heavenly places forever and ever. You see, the amazing truth about God is that despite us rejecting him and ignoring him, he continues to hold out his hand to us. He is continually with us, and He has shown that love through His Son, Jesus. Not only that, He offers us this eternal life, these heavenly places that we talked about earlier, 
And that's our third truth, this truth about eternity. And we catch a glimpse of this in the end of verse 24, where Asaph hints that what God is offering, it's more than just comfort and support for this life, but rather a promise of an eternal comfort. Have a look at verse 24. It says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. You know, this promise of a future glory, it's far, far from a vague abstract notion uh, that's going to give him comfort in his old age or in his boredom, uh, like some sort of eternal super fund that he'll have access to later on. No, no, it's, it's far greater than that. Because look at what happens next. This truth Asaph sees changes his whole worldview. Everything changes. Look at what he writes in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. At this point, Asaph sees that there is no greater treasure than to be with God and that there is nothing in the world more important than this relationship. Why? Verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, it's because our bodies are decaying. Our flesh is weakening and our hearts are failing, but God is eternal. When we grow old, your heart stops beating, your body slowly stops responding, and when you're about to meet your maker, at that point, the thing that captured so much of our passions, our interests, and our joys, whether it was our careers, our job, our degrees, our studies, money, land, cars, possession, experiences, whatever it is, what meaning do we get from it at the end? When we meet our maker in light of eternity, what meaning? None. Because in the end, the house that we've bought and saved up for for multiple years will be broken down and it'll be destroyed over time. The cars that we've worked so hard for, treasured and cared for, will turn to scrap metal. The money you have will become meaningless paper. The experiences you have will fade away. And the lifestyle you live won't matter when the only sanity, uh, the only cleanliness you have is when you wear a nappy. You know, it's at that point, at that point, what's truly valuable will be exposed. And that's why we say with Asaph, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Working, we need a house, we need a car, we need finances, and they aren't bad, but they will not be our strength and our portion forever. They won't. And so as we take a step back from this psalm, it's a long psalm, I want to have a quick step back to have a look at what we've covered. Because we've started with Asaph envying the wicked who were prospering, and these wicked that were filled with pride and arrogance. And Asaph began to doubt whether it's all worth it. But on his own, he just couldn't figure it out. And so he goes to the sanctuary of God, and it's there he sees the end for the wicked. And he sees that God is with him. He sees that God will bring him to glory. And then he sees 
that only God is worth desiring. There's nothing else that will last. And so Asaph puts before us two options in verse 27 and 28. The first option is to continue, to live for the here and now, treasure this world, treasure its desires, keep living in the pride and jealousy and arrogance that we have, and ignore God, ignore His Son Jesus. But just know that it won't, God won't let us do that forever. God will come to judge. And that punishment, that just punishment for our rebellion against God is ruin. That's verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. It's not a trivial question. It's a real choice that we need to consider, and there's nothing funny about it. There is real judgment for those who are far from God. You see, the wicked who who seem to be prospering, we shouldn't be envying them. No. We should be praying for them. Pray that they would see the truth. And perhaps you are here today and you are far from God. You don't know Jesus. You don't know Him and what He has done. Well, I'd ask that you'd consider what this psalm is saying. Consider what Jesus has done on the cross, and we'd love to talk to you more about this, because the only other option is in verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, He allows us to come before God in prayer and to take refuge in Him. And by faith in what Jesus has done, God will bring an eternal comfort, an eternal life, an eternal future with the living God. And when we see that, just like Asaph, our whole life changes when we see the truth that it is Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important than Him. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this psalm. As we hear Asaph's experience, we see how in light of eternity, we see how you have given us everything. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to see beyond what we have here in this world and to see the great future we will have with you for eternity. Please help us to come to you in your word, to live with eternity in mind, to trust in you with all things, not of things of this world, but for your Son, Jesus Christ, and your glory. Lord, if, we, if there are here, people here that don't know you, we pray that you would bring them and look into your Son, Jesus, because there is nothing more important than that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.